For the reading of Scripture this morning, you'll find Hebrews chapter 6. Uh, I was occupied with General Assembly this week, so we're taking a break from the Gospel of Mark. We'll we'll endeavor to return there next week, uh, back into chapter 7 of the Gospel of Mark. So this week we turn to Hebrews chapter 6, and uh, our morning Scripture reading will be from verses 1 through 9. In the epistle to the Hebrews chapter 6, the Word of God, let us hear and attend. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. And we'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. This Hebrews chapter 6 passage is breathtaking. However, it's not breathtaking as in a serene beach sunset or in an awe-inspiring mountain vista, this passage reaches down and grips the soul, wrenching breath away by its spiritual weightiness. This is a heavy passage of Scripture, and it's soul-shocking. Well, the disturbing portion of this passage, of course, is found in verses 4 through 6, which are often taken out of context in an attempt to prove a doctrinal system which teaches that believers can lose salvation. I'm guessing that when I read through uh, verses 1 through 9, that verses 4 through 6 are the ones that kind of shook you and got your attention. But we really need to see this in the fuller context of what we have in chapter 6. If this passage were teaching that believers can lose their salvation, it would really be a two-edged sword because according to verse 6, there could be no repentance unto salvation. So it's a one-shot deal. You get one chance at salvation, and if you mess it up, you never get another chance. It's over. That's not what Scripture teaches about salvation. I heard a, a faithful preacher recently declare, if we could lose our salvation, we all would. That's the reality. And so this passage is not about losing salvation. Examining the context of this passage makes it clear that losing salvation is not the doctrinal lesson intended by the Scripture for two reasons. One, because verse 9 and the rest and balance of the, of the chapter, not to say the broader context, because verse 9 turns the argument by contrast in terms of God's gracious salvation. And you, you don't want to lose that verse 9. It's so important and it, it hinges the whole passage in, in chapter 6. And then also, this passage does not teach that believers can lose their salvation because there are no cooperating scriptures elsewhere that teach that believers can lose their salvation. And I've heard all kind of ingenuous attempts to try to, to press that sentiment, but it's just that it's a sentiment. It's not a doctrine. It's not a teaching of scripture. 
We have two excellent study helps in the Westminster Confession of Faith on chapters 17 and 18. Um, And I commend the Westminster Confession to you as that. It's like a written sermon. And the scripture references that go along with it are so valuable and important. Um, So I, I, again, commend to you using the Confession of Faith to help you um, more deeply appreciate and understand the scriptures. So what is this weighty passage in Hebrews chapter 6 about? Well, another view, which is widely accepted, is that this passage is about a sober warning concerning apostasy. Apostasy means the biblical teaching that someone can make an outward profession of salvation, but can, uh, for a while, um, enjoy the fellowship of the visible church, but then in time turn away and renounce the gospel. And this is a foundational teaching, even from Jesus himself. If you'll remember the parable of the sower of the soils, Jesus says this indeed can happen. There can be seed that that for all outward appearances germinates, but it germinates and it's in shallow soil or it's in rocky soil or it's on a hard path where the devil comes and snatches it away. And so Jesus says, yes, outwardly people can make a profession of salvation, but without an inward change of heart. And they will fall away in the ways that Jesus describes. So that is a valid teaching of Scripture. And it even sometimes goes uh, even deeper into apostasy where not only someone falls away, but they turn against the very gospel and, and deride it and ridicule it and, and disclaim that it is true. So there is uh, a falling away by way of unbelief. There's also a deeper response in apostasy of an outward explicit uh, rejection of the gospel and of the tenets of the faith. But I believe that this Hebrews 6 passage incorporates the biblical doctrine of apostasy. I do believe that that's the, the, uh, the broader biblical teaching in terms of apostasy, and that's what the writer of the Hebrews is dealing with, but he's applying it within the context of the visible church as particular churches and denominations are charged with keeping the truth and the purity of the gospel. This is what we read in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 25, about the visible church. The Catholic or the universal church has sometimes uh, been more or less visible. And I do believe in the, the biblically valid distinction between the visible church as representative of the invisible and universal church. It's not a strict overlapping. So that in the visible church's uh, There can be unbelievers, and visible churches can indeed apostatize denominations. They can turn against the very gospel they one time claimed to believe. We don't tend to think corporately. We don't think uh, in terms of that kind of connectionalism, but we should because Scripture talks to us about that. Here the confession of faith says that the Catholic or the universal church has been sometimes more, sometimes less visible, and particular churches, which are members of the visible church, are more or less pure according to the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced. Ordinances administered and public worship performed more or less purely in them. That's a very valuable instruction to us because we often struggle as to why there isn't uniformity. Why don't all churches believe the same thing? Uh, People often will chide us and say, oh, you think you're better than other churches. And you must not be because you don't have all the outward trappings and benefits and all the signs of success. God doesn't see it that way. That's why we need to be immersed in Scripture. That's why we need to have the mind of Christ. And that's why we need to look on outward things having been tutored by inward things of faith. 
and believing the word of God and to see not with the eyes of the flesh, but with the eyes of faith. That lesson is repeatedly not only pressed upon us, but illustrated many times throughout Scripture in Old and New Testament. So, of this visible church that represents but is not coextensive with the universal church, there are particular churches like Brookwood Presbyterian Church. They're members of the visible church and of the universal church and are more or less pure according as the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced, ordinances administered, public worship performed more or less purely in them. More or less purely. There is more pure, there is less pure. It's not a point of pride. It's a driving desire for obedience. And I will say on my part, a very keen sense of accountability. I am going to give an account to God. Everywhere in Scripture, we're taught that. I want to give an account with joy, having overseen and cared and watched for your souls and prayed for you. That's more than I can. What the Apostle Paul said, who's sufficient for this? Can't do it on your own. And so I look to the Lord and to his means. And, and I stand before you intently and purposely saying, my desire, my prayer is that we be more pure as a, as a church. And if that carries with it some sense of egotism, oh, you think you're better. It's not, that's not the intent at all. Think of more pure as clearer. I want to be a clear church. I want to be a church where Jesus is clearly seen in all his glory and claims and beauty and wonder. So think of purity in that way. Not of egotism and better, but of clearer and more beautiful. Uh, the confession goes on to say, the purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error. And some have so degenerated as to uh, become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. That's a phrase that comes right out of Scripture. I know it tends to be offensive. I know it seems to be shocking. I know it seems that some would say that's just mean-spirited. No, it's not. It comes right out of Scripture. That's what's at stake. More or less pure. More pure, but still with error, but striving and desiring and wanting the clarity of the gospel and the, the beauty of Christ to be presented. Less pure. Less clear, less obedient, less faithful, even to the degree of apostasy of becoming synagogues of Satan. That's heavy stuff. But then the confession goes on to say, which I take great uh, comfort and delight and and, uh, and um, strength from. Nevertheless, there shall always be a church on earth to worship God according to His will. And that's where I end up. I want to always be worshiping God according to His will. More or less pure, I strive for that clarity and purity. Mindful of error, admixture, confusion, uncertainty, failure, little faith. All these things, all these impurities that get in the way. But the desire is to always be worshiping God. Seeking more clarity, more purity, more faithfulness, more obedience. To worship God according to His will. One astounding warning from Hebrews 6 may be formed as a question for us. Can the visible church lose the gospel? Now, I think that's really 
the nexus of this passage in Hebrews 6. Can the visible church lose the gospel? This warning is identified in the context by verse 6 with the disturbing evidence when churches are publicly ashamed of the Son of God. So the rhetorical question is, can visible churches lose the gospel? The answer is in verse 6. When churches publicly are ashamed of the Son of God, they turn against the gospel and they become enemies of God. Have you ever been shamed by a parent? Ever been shamed by a teacher? Ever been shamed by a coach? Or have you ever ever publicly been ridiculed, insulted, or embarrassed? Well, that's the idea that's being expressed here. To be ashamed of the Son of God. To publicly ridicule, insult, be embarrassed for who Jesus is. By this question, believing Christians are faced with the disturbing and the uncomfortable consideration of when does heresy, misteaching, confused teaching, and that happens, more or less pure, admixture of error. When does heresy, miss and mistaken and wrong direction type teaching, when does that become apostasy, false teaching that denies the gospel? Does that get your attention? I I, I ponder that. I think about that. I, I don't have pat answers to it, but it's a legitimate question. When does it cross the line? You know, Paul gave some example of this when he said that Hymenaeus and Philetus are false teachers. They have overturned the faith of some teaching that the resurrection has already happened, has already passed. You missed it. But this foundation stands sure. Even though Hymenaeus and Philetus are false teachers, and though many have been confused by them, this foundation stands sure. God knows them that are his. That helps me a lot. There are misguided Christian believers because they've been uh, given false, misguided teaching. Some of it is mistaken out of ignorance or out of presumption or out of the systems that are reactionary because we don't like what Scripture says. But then there is a crossing of the line sometimes, the crossing of the line where it becomes a matter of being ashamed of Jesus as the Son of God and rejecting the gospel. And it should get our attention. And it should cause us to think soberly. Because losing the gospel is losing the good news of God's way of salvation. There are churches out there preaching all kinds of things. Self-help, social gospel, uh, all manner of spiritism. Find your own way to God. Beloved, when you lose the gospel, you lose The good news of God's way of salvation. And there's no way around that. We we referenced the passage in 1 John this morning about denying the the Son. If you deny the Son, you don't have the Father either. That, That was a strong passage of Scripture, wasn't it? But one that can be understood. And that's another thing that Again, I appreciate the Westminster Confession. Here is uh, uh, from chapter 1 of the Confession, section 7. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation, the gospel, are so clearly propounded or opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned 
Not only those who have studied and have the educational background and have the benefit of, of really going and digging into the original uh, languages, into the history of doctrine and things of that nature. Not only the learned, but the unlearned. Now, the unlearned here doesn't mean ignorant. It means those who haven't had the same advantage of extensive study and, and uh, vocation and maybe even calling, because I believe in the gift of the Holy Spirit and calling to the ministry. Not everybody is called to be a minister or a pastor, teacher, in, in terms of Christ's gift to his church. And so God does endow those whom he calls, pastor, teachers, Jesus says, with the gift of the Holy Spirit, unto this end that they be equipped to serve Christ as an under-shepherd. And so there are some who are not called that way, who are not gifted that way. But nonetheless, from the study and the reading of Scripture, even those who are unlearned in that particular vocation of being a minister and a due use of ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them, of salvation and the gospel. Every one of you can know the true gospel from the false gospel. You can know it. You can know it along the lines of the things we've talked about this morning. You can know it in terms of understanding who Jesus Christ is as the Son of God and that we only have access and know the Father through the Son. To deny that Jesus is the Son of God is to deny God the Father. To reject Him and what He has revealed. You can understand that. When we talk about Jesus as the perfect God-man, that it was necessary that He be God and man, two natures in one person, there's a lot of of deep mystery in all of that. And it's led some to confusion. Even very intellectual and gifted and, and um, uh, trained men sometimes struggle because they try to go too deeply into the mysteries of God. There are things we accept on faith that it must be so. Jesus had to be God to satisfy God. Jesus had to be human to substitute for humans. I think that is one of the most profound contemplations from Scripture. I can't go much further than that myself. But I'm not ashamed of that. I publicly testify that Jesus is the God-man, and necessarily so. Not only from Scripture, but by implication of faith. He must have been born of a virgin to have a true human nature, but not an endemic father. He was born without the guilt of original sin, but in the condition of our fallen humanity, subject to all that the fall brought, even death itself. The Bible says Jesus was really tempted. It doesn't elaborate on uh, the extent of those temptations. It summarizes them, but it concludes by saying, in all points as we are, yet without sin. There's nothing you're walking through that Jesus doesn't know about. Somebody say, well, maybe Jesus wasn't tempted to, to get out his cell phone and be interested in his cell phone during sermon rather than listening to the sermon. No, but distraction from God? Who cares about the technology? Think the devil didn't try to distract Jesus from believing and focusing on God's sufficiency? He did. That's what the scripture means about all points. We get really silly about stuff like that. And so the scriptures are clear enough for everyone to know the basics of God's way of salvation. Now I'm not talking about the need for eyes, spiritual eyes to be open. I'm not talking about 
the need for dead hearts to be resurrected. I'm not talking about darkened minds to be enlightened. That comes from the Holy Spirit. But intellectually, I can tell you that Jesus died on a cross historically and really. You can get that. Oh, he died a real death on the cross. He was condemned. He was executed. We go into great detail about the the grimness of what what happened. I can tell you that Jesus was buried in a borrowed tomb. We have a historical record of that. He was... uh, his body was treated according to the fashion of the day and prepared for burial and put in a tomb and buried and sealed. We even have further historical evidence of the Roman guard being set there and all the precautions that were taken. So historically, you can understand, oh yeah, that's, I understand something about what it means to be buried back then. You described it a little bit, kind of different than now, but nonetheless there's uh, understanding how that took place. And then I can tell you that Jesus rose on the third day from the dead. And the stone was rolled away to prove that the tomb was empty. And there's witness of angelic presence and declaration and witness. And there are many, many uh, human witnesses to the resurrection and the appearance of the Lord Jesus in their midst. And whether you believe that or not doesn't change the historical record that it was witnessed to as being true. And if you believe it, you believe it because the Holy Spirit has enlivened your heart and mind to say, Jesus is the Son of God. And I'm not ashamed of that. And that's what the writer of the Hebrews is getting at. He was raised for our justification. Because Jesus lives, we have the promise of eternal life. And God's promises are true. He sealed it. And if you believe that, then you're not ashamed of Jesus Christ. That's what the writer of the Hebrews is getting at here. The context of this passage is primarily about the visible church, and it's secondarily by application about the matter of individual apostasy. And I want you to see that because we live in a culture that promotes the cult of self. Everything's about self. We start out with self. Very often when we come to Scripture, we miss the collective and the corporate connection that's there regarding the visible and the sacramental church that we are a part of that corporate identity we're a part of that um, collective unity in Christ it's not just about us individually and our faith is not just individual faith and piety and yet we struggle with that in this culture it's often our default starting place So the scriptures repeatedly exhort believers about the mystery of communion in the body of Christ and our connectedness to one another. We're celebrating that this morning in this Lord's Supper and communion. Why do we do it publicly and collectively? Because what it says to us is that we're part of the same loaf of the bread of the body of Christ. Like we each take a piece of this bread that came from one piece of bread. It's a beautiful illustration to us that we are of one body in Christ. We don't lose our individuality, but we gain a connection in a living unity with Christ and with one another. That's why this is a communion of the body of Christ and of the blood of Christ. And it says, by way of admonition to us, it's not just about us and God, it's about us and God with one another. Why do we have prohibitions warning us not to partake of this Lord's Supper in hypocrisy? From the scriptural admonitions that how can you say you love God when you hate your brother who is made in the image of God? 
and many like applications. Love God and love neighbor. Don't hold uh, bitterness and resentment, jealousy, and such things. Unforgiveness. Over and over, Scripture warns us about these things. It warns us about them in the context of not just so you'll have an easy conscience, not just so you will feel better about yourself. That's distorted too. No, it's so that you will have a good conscience before God. And that, as Scripture says, because God in Christ has forgiven you, so you have forgiven others. Because God calls us to that. Because God enables us to do that. And because God requires us to do that. So, you know that there are some, uh, for example, in the New Testament, there are some uh, letters that are written to individuals, like Philemon was written, Paul was writing to Philemon. But then what about Paul writing to Timothy or to Titus? Have you noticed that Paul writes to Timothy or Titus, but in what way? As ministers in connection with the church. So we need to see that. How important is the connectedness in the body of Christ that we have? And what about... So many scriptures that are written, uh, so many letters are written to whom? Written to Christian believers, often called churches, to the church in Ephesus. The Christian believers gathered there in the visible church. To the church and believers in Rome gathered there in the visible church. To the sojourners of the dispersion gathered into visible churches, gathering places, synagogue or ecclesia, the gathering places or the churches. It's not just about you as an individual. It it is about you as an individual, but so much more. You in Christ, in connection with one another, in the body of Christ. We lose that. We need to be reminded of that. We need to focus on that. The context of Hebrews 6 is about the visible sacramental church and God's covenantal faithfulness fulfilled in the new covenant by the person and work of Christ, the Son of God, applied by the Holy Spirit through the gospel means of grace. That's what will guide you into this disturbing passage in Hebrews 6. So quickly, let me just give you an overview. And I'm not going to give a full exposition. Time doesn't permit. But I want you to see the the larger connection here and the bigger picture, if you will, in uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. The gospel is incomplete without the God-appointed doctrines and means of grace. It's not just talking about gospel. People use that word very loosely. I mean, you go to the local grocery store and you can find all kind of books on, you know, the gospel of this or the gospel of that. And so the word has become very loosely used, but what we understand here is that the gospel is incomplete. It's an incomplete gospel. It's not the full uh, teaching of Scripture and identification of the good news without God's appointed doctrines and means of grace. As a matter of fact, people can use the name of Christ. People and organizations can use the name of Christ and of Christianity in a vain and hollow way, even resulting in divine abandonment. Uh, Over a hundred years ago, one of my uh, favorite fathers and teachers uh, was uh, B.B. Warfield. He wrote an article called Christless Christianity. Over a hundred years ago, Christless Christianity. It's long been the contention that we have to contend for the faith once we're all delivered to the saints. And we have to uh, promote and identify uh, 
Christ, the Son of God. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. We mustn't be ashamed of Him. And today I can tell you the same thing goes on. Christless Christianity. People who claim and use the name of Christ and Christianity in a vain and empty way. Denying the very identity of Jesus as the Christ. And we need to be aware of that. Listen to verses 1 through 3. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principle, the basic things of Christianity. Believing that Jesus is the Son of God and confessing that He is the Son of God. That's the starting place. But it doesn't end there. So, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection or to completion. We want more. We want to advance. Not with egotism or headiness, but deeper understanding and wonder of who Jesus is as the Christ. Uh, Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. In other words, it's not just over and over and over doing an altar call. It's not emotionally driving you to a sense of shame or guilt. No, repentance has been affected by the Holy Spirit. You've been born again. We're called to repentance regularly to make confession of our sin, but we don't dwell there. We go on with the words of assurance and forgiveness and of growth and living with one another in Christ, faith toward God. We move on. We're to be growing. And he says in verse 2 of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. Those things take in the full scope of our life, even through our death of resurrection and of eternal judgment. That covers it all, doesn't it? Now, whatever happens between now and then, I don't know how many days I have left. I don't know what God's time clock is for me. I'm living in Christ. I'm seeking to bear out the gospel and to testify and be unashamed of Jesus as the Son of God. But you know what's awaiting me? Ultimately, what's awaiting me is resurrection. I'm going to die. I'm awaiting resurrection and judgment, the great judgment day of God. That's ever kept before me, the scope of the gospel. And so the writer says, this is what we intend to do if God permits. This is where we want to go with this sermon. Some people think that Hebrews chapter, um, um, that the book of Hebrews is like a, a sermon transcript, uh, maybe sermon notes. I have an affinity for that, thinking that it very well might be. Might have been some ancient sermon notes that were given to us and written for our continued edification. And then he goes on in verses 4 through 6. Forsaking the gospel results in openly shaming Jesus Christ as insufficient, along with the risk of becoming like the religious people who originally crucified the Son of God. The idea that's being expressed here in verses 4 through 6 is that of betrayal. Expressing the idea of continual, intentional condition of willfully giving up in the same way that the ones who actively crucified Jesus did. They gave up. They became ashamed of Jesus. And they gave him over. And so here the writer of the Hebrews is not saying that you actually re-crucify Jesus, but rather you have that disposition of rejection by betrayal of those who originally betrayed Jesus. And of course, the leading example here is Judas Iscariot. So what should we say of churches or denominations which forsake and deny 
that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, being ashamed to witness of His substitutionary death. Oh, we don't need that bloody religion. Let's not talk about the death of Jesus. That's too unsettling. That's too gross. That's, that's just something back in time. We don't do that kind of thing anymore. Or if, of His literal burial. Wait a minute. If we talk about the literal burial... That kind of disturbs us because it makes us think about we have to be buried too, that we're going to die. I don't want to think about dying. I want want to think about good things. Or the historical, factual resurrection and glorification. Well, we don't know about that. I mean, that sounds kind of like a, a fairy tale. We need practical stuff. Well, such groups that are ashamed of Jesus as the Son of God should really be called Judas Iscariot churches. That's what the writer of the Hebrews is getting out here in verses 4 through 6. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened. Now I want you to understand that these are all external benefits. Not about regeneration, but it's about like Jesus spoke of the soil, of the the seeds that germinate in the soil, in the rocky soil, um, in the weeds, on the hard path. So that, what's being described here are those who have had the benefit of the external blessings of the visible church. It's impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, again, not in personal regeneration, but by manifestation of the benefits and goodness of Christ to the visible church, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, Wherever people are in a faithful church, these things happen. It overflows. If you are in a faithful, gospel-preaching, teaching, and believing church, then there is going to be an enlightening that comes from what the Word of God says. There's going to be a taste of God's blessing. Just when you hear of how God provided for someone, you're going to hear that. Whether you believe it or not, whether your heart has been changed, you're going to be enlightened by that, and you're going to taste other people's blessings saying the Lord has done this for me the Lord has blessed me the Lord has cared for me there's going to be a participation in the Holy Spirit's presence the Holy Spirit is with us the Holy Spirit indwells us not unbelievers but believers if there are unbelievers in a faithful congregation the Holy Spirit's blessings pour over from the people of God doesn't regenerate their heart but it spills over And the tasting of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. There are people whose hearts are not regenerate who taste the word of God. They may even enter in to praise. Tasting the word of God and singing the doxology. And of the world to come. That is the testimony that we all have, just like I gave. What awaits me is resurrection. And the day of judgment. And I'm not afraid of the day of judgment. You know why I'm not afraid of the day of judgment? Because I have on the wedding garments of the righteousness of Christ that lets me in. Not by my doing, but by the promise of God. That, that faith is sure and steadfast and as an anchor for my soul. The writer of the Hebrews is even going to say that. So you need to understand the challenge of these verses And what's being said here is not that there is a re-crucifying of Jesus, but rather you're acting out like those religious people who betrayed Jesus 
and originally crucified him. Remember the the, the people that followed Jesus? Give us more to eat. Show us more of your wonders. Take care of our needs. Heal our sick. Raise our dead. Crucify him. Because we don't want him anymore. Isn't that stark? Can you believe that? I can believe it because I know the deception of my own heart. If God did not keep me and if God had not changed me, that's what has to happen. That's what the writer of the Hebrews is saying. There can be people in the visible church outwardly like Judas who then betray and give the Son of God over and say, I don't want him anymore. The Judas Iscariot church. Does that register with you? I was thinking about the phrase that comes out of the book of Revelation in the, uh, in the uh, confession. Have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. That's a phrase that comes right out of the book of Revelation. But then I got thinking in reference to this passage and the betrayal of the, Jesus as the Son of God and being publicly ashamed of him. We don't want him. In, crucify him. We don't want him anymore. Boy, it hit me like cold water. The Judas Iscariot church. Can the visible church lose the gospel? Particular individual churches and denominations, they can lose the gospel. They can turn against Jesus and be ashamed of him as the Son of God and say, we don't want this Jesus of the Bible. Let us have another Jesus. Let us make up our own Christ who's like this or like that. And how do you know the difference from the revelation of God in Scripture? Let God be true and everybody else a liar. Verses 7 through 8, like the natural world is dependent on God's power and order, so the gospel is only fruitful by God's blessing. God does not sanctify error and falsehood. God sanctifies truth. Jesus prayed to that. Sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word is truth. And so listen to verses uh, 7 and 8. They, they help to turn. They hinge this whole passage so that you get an understanding of what it's about. Because just like in the natural world, we're dependent on God's power and order. I know you all, every time you go to the grocery store, you know that. Every time you pick up a succulent pink lady apple. Every time you, you look for um, good food that's been preserved in, in good ways. like how, how can you dry beans and yet eat them so much later and they're still good? Because of God's natural order within the creation and how it benefits us. How is it that eating bread or drinking wine can nourish your body? And Jesus says, I do more than that. Eating bread and, and drinking wine nourishes your body. Don't you want more? Don't you want nourishment for your soul? That's who I am. I'm bread to your soul. I'm, I'm wine to your spirit. That's what Jesus is saying to us. You don't doubt that this is bread and wine. You don't doubt that it nourishes your body. We all have a wonder in how food stuff can go into our body and into our system and be broken down and then carried all through our body, through our bloodstream. All the nutrients and benefits that keep us breathing and alive. How does that happen?
because God is in charge of the order of creation and he's designed it that way. Why would you doubt him about spiritual things? When Jesus says, I am more real to you in life-giving essence than this bread and this wine is to your body, I give you life, the life of the soul. And so the gospel is dependent on God to be fruitful and his blessing. Look at verses 7 and 8. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often come upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. Aren't we glad? Aren't we glad? Verse 8. But if it bears thorns and briars, aren't we unhappy to go out to our little garden, our tomatoes, our okra, our squash, whatever it might be. And what do we have to contend with? Briars and weeds. Why do they grow so easily? It's not like you planted them. We're fighting against the briars and the weeds. And they're near to being cursed. I don't know if that means the farmer wants to curse or not. More weeds. Where do these weeds come from? But their end is to be burned. You get the point of what he's saying here. I hope you do. The application is that just like the natural world is dependent on God's power and order for the the fruit-bearing plants that we use for food, contending against the briars and the weeds that are wanting to choke them out in this constant conflict. And what do we do? We nourish and cultivate the food crops and we pull up and burn the weeds. And so the point is, God is the harvester. God brings the harvest. That analogy is used over and over and over in Scripture. And the point is that we're dependent upon God for the fruitfulness of the gospel and its blessing. We don't do it our way. We must obey God. And then verses 9 through 12. Visible churches may be evaluated by the biblically identified things that accompany salvation. So visible churches are considered better or worse, or more pure or less pure by God's covenantal standards. This is more than morality based on God's faithfulness and living by faith. This is one of the problems where churches increasingly moralize. They're ashamed of the Son of God. Oh, they like the Jesus stories. But they reject the power of the gospel and the transformation that we must preach that comes from within through the vicarious sufferings and sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ and the necessity of His blood offering and His substitution. And people say, I don't want to hear that anymore. I don't want to hear about Jesus dying. Or if I hear about it, I want to hear about it as His being a hero. We want a superhero Jesus. Not a substitutionary scapegoat. Jesus is an offense. The death on the cross is horrifying. There's no superhero there to the visible sight. It's only by faith that you see the power of the Son of God risen from the dead. And that's far beyond any human imagination of superhero. That's super God. But but people don't want to hear that. They want to make up their own gospel. They want to make up their own tantalizing self-help morality. 
And we want a changing morality. We want a changing morality that no longer requires creation ordinance of God and accountability to Him as Creator, one man, one woman, in the blessing of marriage. But now we want to moralize that into our own culture of a a loving couple. Whatever they identify as, a loving couple. And we redefine marriage not as a creation ordinance, but rather as an, an individual identity. Well, I'm going to identify as a Martian. Okay, I'll identify as a Saturn. And we'll, get a, we'll have a celestial marriage. And nobody can tell us it isn't real because we believe it. And that's not even the extent of the folly that is going around. People have lost their minds. Collectively, our culture is reprobate of no judgment. They've lost their minds. Because they've turned against the knowledge of God and they're ashamed of Jesus. Churches are ashamed of Jesus as the Son of God. You better be aware of this. I'll tell you, beloved, I often pray and and think about it. Lord Jesus, what would I do if I didn't have the fellowship of the Brookwood Church of the Lovers of Christ? What would I do? Where would I go? I know there will always be a church on earth to worship God according to his will, but it may not be right around the corner. (laughs) Do you know what's out there? Do you know that churches are ashamed of Jesus as the Son of God and they're abandoning the gospel and have abandoned the gospel? It is. It's a fight. It's a contention. It's a struggle. Look at verses uh, 9 through 12. I know I can't do the exposition on, on all these verses, but just listen to them in terms of evaluating uh, biblically that which accompanies salvation. Um, but, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. He says, I, I know this is a challenging thing. It's unsettling what I've said. But God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, not being ashamed of his name. The name of Jesus, revealing to us the Christ of God. And that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. That is, you serve the people of God. And you continue serving the people of God according to the things that God has identified. Verse 11, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. And that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Don't give up. Don't be like Judas. Don't turn away. Don't surrender. Don't betray. But be patient and believe and continue on serving in faith, not by sight. We have a good example in Abraham. Abraham belongs to the Christian faith. An example of justification by faith and covenantal grace. Isn't that wonderful how the the gospel, the new covenant, claims Abraham long before? Look at verses uh, 13 through 15. For when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. This is the God we're talking about. This is the God who has identified himself in the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, his son, who is the amen to all the promises of God. Will God fulfill his promises? Jesus Christ, amen, he will. So he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. 
And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. And then we go on to the conclusion of chapter 6 in verses 16 through 20, that God's eternal counsel confirmed by his covenantal oath is timeless. What was written here in Hebrews, reflecting on the words of God to Abraham that come out of the council of eternity, are timeless. It means as much to you and me right now as it ever did. It never loses its meaning. It's timeless. It ensures the success of the gospel of Christ. We don't need to worry about whether the gospel is going to be successful. We need to pray about us remaining faithful. We don't need to worry about what's going to happen next. As I told you, I pray and say, Lord, a place to worship you according to your will with people who love you who are not ashamed of of Jesus as the Savior. That's a good thing. God says he'll bless that. God says he'll keep that. Whether he'll keep it in this location or, or elsewhere, I don't know. But he keeps his promises. It's timeless. The promise of the success of the gospel is timeless. Because it's God's oath that he's given and manifest in the incarnate word. God's oath has come to visibility in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. How do you make an oath visible? Well, you might write it down on paper. Or you might raise a memorial and inscribe it on a memorial. You know how God made his oath visible? The Son of God, Emmanuel among us, became flesh. And so, God's eternal counsel confirmed by his covenantal oath is timeless and ensures the success of the gospel of Christ. God has given his promise by his word in scripture and in the incarnation. Listen to verses 16 through 20. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath of confirmation is for them the end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, me and you and all the other true believers that keep on believing, that don't be ashamed of Jesus and turn against him like Judas Iscariot. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to all the heirs of promise, the unchangeableness of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two unchangeable things, God's promise and God's oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope is an anchor of the soul both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. You think about an anchor and the anchor line that goes down to the depths of the ocean, down to the ocean floor and anchors the ship there. You can't see that anchor, can you? It's amazing to me. That anchor drops, and off it goes. But then it hits, and it takes hold. And even a big ship can be steadied by that. Jesus is our anchor line. Jesus anchors us to the life and acceptance of God. Jesus anchors us behind the veil where we can't see. And he keeps us and he holds us sure and steadfast by the promises of God. He's entered the presence behind the veil. Jesus is the forerunner. He's gone there before us. And he is a high priest. He's more than a high priest. Did you know that? He's the highest of priests because he's the king priest. He didn't come after the line of Aaron or in the tribe of Levi and the line of priest. No, by a special oath, his 
Priesthood was conferred from God. He is greater than Melchizedek of old to whom Abraham gave tithes and paid homage because he is the fulfiller of that mystic wonder of the king-priest greater than Aaron. Who is Jesus? He is our king-priest. And so as priest, he mediates for us in the presence of God. As king, he is our victor. And he assures us that his kingdom will never fail and that we remain true to the good news of his gospel and we're not ashamed of his name. And that is to be blessed by God. Not ashamed of the Son of God. Jesus is the greater Melchizedek. He is our king priest. You ever tempted to be ashamed of Jesus? Young people, if you're ever tempted to be ashamed of Jesus because people are talking about how gory the crucifixion is or what a, what a uh, loser it is that he, you know, he died or he, he just was, uh, had a good cause, but like others before him, he was uh, um, sacrificed to make an example. Reject all of that. That's not the gospel. If you're ever tempted to be ashamed of Jesus, you remember this. He is the king priest. He is in heaven, and God the Father is pleased to give him the kingdoms of the world for his footstool. What is there to be ashamed of? More importantly, what is there to celebrate and worship? Beloved, let us celebrate and worship Jesus, not be ashamed of him. And let us rejoice in the good news of that salvation that comes from him only. So don't be discouraged. Don't be of little faith. Don't be unbelieving. But look to Jesus and where he is in heaven for you and for me. For us, as I've been preaching about the body of Christ, the church, he's there for us. One another. Isn't that a beautiful description? One another. It's not just one. It's not the other. One another in Christ. You know how we're called by the word to reflect and to examine ourselves to come to this Lord's Supper.